1998, reporter Annette Vasulka detailed a transformation that took place at the Vela Vista prison in the city of Medellin, Colombia. Now, you need to know that the country of Colombia has a murder rate 15 times that of the United States. And you also need to know that this particular prison, Bella Vista, has a murder problem that is exponentially worse. That prison houses Colombia's worst criminals. It was designed for 1,500 men, but in 1985 there were 4,000 crowded into that prison. Largely because prison guards were slipped a bribe, weapons of all kinds got into the prison. And in 1985, it was reported that two inmates were murdered on average every single day by other inmates. It was then, that year, 1985, that Oscar Osorio, a former inmate at the Bella Vista prison, began preaching the gospel inside the walls. After five years of praying and preaching, Bella Vista became the epicenter of revival in Colombia's prison system. In the eight years that followed, there were only four murders total. Over 500 inmates gathered every morning around the prison for a Bible study, for prayer, discipleship. More than 800 were baptized in that period of time. And additionally, they started the Bella Vista Bible Institute. After seven years, they graduated 63 men for ministry. Where does that kind of transformation come from? Before Augustine's conversion, he lived a very immoral life. He was converted in Rome, though he lived in North Africa. When he returned to Carthage, his concubine was waiting for him. She cried out, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he walked right past her. With a persistent cry, he finally turned and said, I know, but it is not I. Where does that kind of transformation come from? This morning in our continuing study through the fourth gospel, we find ourselves in listening into a conversation Jesus has with his men in the last hours he has with them prior to his betrayal, his arrest, his execution on the following day. They had finished their Passover meal 
And though, and even though Jesus had said these things, he repeated them. He was going to be betrayed. He was going to die. And his disciples were aghast. They were befuddled. They could not understand. They were confused. They didn't know which end was up. How is it that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he's talking about death? He's talking about a a betrayer? Who is that? In the midst of their confusion, their angst, Jesus sought to comfort his men. And he comforted them by giving them specific promises. We've looked at some of these promises so far over the last few weeks. In John chapter 14, Jesus promises them of they would, that they would be able to do the works that he did. Indeed, they would do greater works than he did. Not, not greater than, um, than uh, raising the dead or, or, or feeding 5,000 with a, a couple of fish and some dinner rolls. No, greater deeds of a completely different kind. Kingdom work would continue even after Jesus was gone. Further, he promised that he would answer their prayers as they prayed God-honoring, God-glorifying, kingdom-building kind of prayers. Last week we looked at the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus said would come. He would have to go, but in going, he would send to them the paraclete, the helper, the advocate. He would send to them the spirit of truth, not one who was in competition with Jesus, who said he was the truth, but one who would be complementary to everything Jesus said. The spirit would speak only that which was true. Jesus called him the Holy Spirit because he would be involved in the whole work of sanctifying, changing, transforming the lives of men and women who put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus alone. This morning we are continuing in John chapter 14. Our text is the same text that we had last week. But last week I was, I was picking and choosing some of the verses that had to do with the Holy Spirit. And this morning I'm going to pick and choose other verses. But I'm not even going to pick and choose all the verses that remained because next week I'm going to save one particular verse, verse 27, and give special attention to that particular verse next week, Lord willing. I want you to follow along with me in John chapter 14, beginning at verse 15. Jesus is speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, 
because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will not see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me, he will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened to you that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's, the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father has sent in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that it was said to you, I will go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more about uh, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. In the verses that we will consider this morning, I see the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work of transformation in two ways. Unto obedience and unto joy. Both of which come directly from our text. Jesus says in verse 15, point number one, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Before we think of our love for the Savior, think with me about your B.C. life, your before Christ life. What was that like? Now, if you became a believer at a young age, you may not remember much of, of this, but if you've uh, come to faith as an adult, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You certainly have seen it in the lives of other people who have come to faith. Prior to Christ, speaking into your life, you were spiritually dead. And as a result, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2, you had no hope. 
you were, indeed, under the wrath of God. What knowledge you did had of God you did have of God, you suppressed, you ignored, you went your own way. You were content with that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that as an unbeliever before Christ, you could not understand, could not comprehend, couldn't wrap your mind around the truths of Scripture. You were lost. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says that the Lord Jesus Christ will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Do not believe, do not know, do not obey. In our before Christ picture, we we lived in the likeness of, of Pharaoh. In Exodus chapter 5, we read Moses' record of Pharaoh's response to the demand of God to let the people of Israelite, the people of Israel go. Pharaoh said, if Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. That was our life before the Lord came into our life. We didn't know God and didn't care. We wanted to go our own way and were content to do so. Thank you very much. John chapter 3, just after maybe the most quoted verse out of John's gospel, verse 16, we read these words, verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of the Father. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Before we knew the Lord, before we had submitted our lives to Christ, before he was our Savior, before he was our Lord, we lived in darkness and were happy there. But then, there was a point of time where the light of the gospel shone into our hearts and into our souls. And we became new creatures in Christ, completely different. We were transformed. It was as though we had been born all over again. Sometimes we think that in our new life, B.C., that is, because of Christ, sometimes we think that um, it was because we finally understood, we finally got it, we finally saw how all of the puzzle pieces fit together, and we said, I believe, 
Oh, there is indeed a moment where we must say, I believe. But let's not overlook the fact that I believe because the Lord first touched my soul. In the book of 1 John, the Apostle John's first epistle, in chapter 4, he says in verse 10, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Just a few verses later in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, We love because He first loved us. We love God because of His initiative to love us first. The standard of our love, Jesus mentions in John chapter 15, verse 13, greater love, this is agape love, by the way, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So now with that background, we look at our text. We open with, Verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, if you agape love me, sacrificially love me, truly love me, love me in the deepest sense, you will keep my commandments. This is my response to God's initiative. He takes the initiative to love me And in response, I love him. How do I know that? Here's the fruit. I keep his commandments. I don't keep his commandments in order to win his love, earn his love. The keeping of his commandments is my response to the love he's already shown me. My keeping of His commandments is my love for Christ to the same degree that He loved me with a dying love. What that means is this this keeping my commandments is a all-out, full-throttle You have everything in me. I will do everything you have commanded. Kind of keeping his commandments. Let me say a few things about this word, keep. It's here in verse 15. If you let your eyes go down to verse 21 you find the same verb, keep. In verse 23, you see the same verb, verb, keep. In verse 24, you see the same verb, keep. In the Greek text, it's exactly the same verb. And you find it twice, again, in chapter 15. Keep, keep, keep. What, 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 What does that mean? We might use the word obey, 
as a synonym. But the word keep in its original uh, is very colorful and very rich. It means to guard from loss, to keep your eye on, to keep from escaping. It means to exercise watchful care, to protect as a treasure, to take all pains not to lose. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Your response to my love is to love me. And here's how everybody knows it. You will know it. People around you will know it. You will keep my commandments. You will will guard these commandments. You will treasure them. You're not going to allow them to escape. You are going to take great pains to not lose any of them. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. That's how everybody knows. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. I don't earn the Father's love by obeying the commandments of the Son. The love of the Father is a confirmation that I do indeed love the Son. And how do we all know that I love the Son? By my keeping of His commandments. And in that keeping there is a greater disclosure by the Son, by the Father, of the Holy Trinity. I know more about God. I know more about the Father, about the Son, about the Spirit, as I walk in obedience to what He has put before me. And He gives greater disclosure of who He is. You've experienced that. As you walk with the Savior... And there is an intimacy, there is a closeness with Him. As you read the Scriptures, as you understand more, there is an enlightenment that takes place, and you say to yourself, I have read that verse dozens of times, but now it makes sense to me. That's further disclosure of the person and the work of God for those who are responsive to him in keeping his commandments. It's at this point, verse 22, that Judas interrupts Jesus. Now in this this, uh, discourse that Jesus uh, has presented here to us, what we call the upper room discourse, we have um, uh, an interruption by Peter, and then another one by Thomas, and then another one by Philip, and now Judas's turn. Now, this is not Judas Iscariot. Uh, 
John makes that clear. This is Judas, as we find in Luke's Gospel. This is Judas, son of James. Or as Matthew identifies him, he's called Thaddeus. So let's just call him JT. Judas Thaddeus. JT interrupts Jesus and says, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? The disciples, as distraught as they are, as confused as they are, still are of the mind that Jesus, who is Messiah, there's no question in their mind about that, Jesus has revealed himself as Messiah. They get that. But in their mind, Messiah has a kingdom here on earth, a physical kingdom right here, right now. Immediately, they're waiting for it. They can't put together how Jesus is Messiah, and yet he's going to be dead? That didn't make any sense. That's part of the confusion. But Judas is saying, Lord, you've revealed yourself to us. Um, But how come you're not disclosing yourself to the world? Isn't that the point of your whole mission? As Messiah, you're going to rule over all, and you're going to have to disclose yourself. They were expecting that CNN was going to knock on the door of their upper room and have a piece about Jesus, broadcast it. Uh, He's the Messiah. This is the guy. Jesus answers in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, on a first read, it appears that Jesus might simply be, might simply be, might simply uh, ignore J.T. Judas Thaddeus. Um, he's not. He's he's answering his concern. It's not the kind of answer that Judas is looking for. But but Jesus affirms that his departure for these men, is not the end. It's not the end of Jesus. It's not the end of the kingdom work that Jesus has started. The kingdom work will continue. Though Jesus will not be physically present, the Holy Spirit will be there. The Father, the Son, will make their abode by the person of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these men. He will disclose himself to the world through them. That's absolutely astonishing. Verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. We're not surprised by that. The word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus came on a mission. 
His incarnation was the enfleshment, if you will, of the Father's plan of redemption. Jesus did as the Father bade him to do. Jesus spoke as the Father instructed him to speak. These words, Jesus is speaking, came from the Father. It's all part of the bigger mission. And the mission hasn't ceased. It's, it's not as though the mission was, was, uh, was pushed off the road and into a muddy ditch, never to get going again. No, it will not be in the form that the disciples expected. Oh, but it will be more glorious and far more powerful. The work of the Holy Spirit is to transform those who belong to Christ, their response to his love will be one of obedience. There, there is, a, um, uh, there is a, a gluing together of faith and obedience. Sometimes there are people that will, 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 will try to uh, divide, separate uh, those, those two ideals. Uh, scripture does not. If you look with me at John chapter 3, the last verse in that chapter reads this way. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. You see the two parallel ideas. In the first half, that person has eternal life. Second half, that person does not see life. Doesn't have eternal life. In the first clause, John mentions the person who believes in the Son. The second clause, he refers to that person who does not obey the Son. Belief and obedience are two sides of the same salvation coin. You can't have one without the other. They both go together. Now, in the, in the, in, in the flow of, of events, faith will show first. But good deeds, obedience, always follow. In John's first epistle, he said, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Peter addresses the audience of his first epistle as those who are chosen to obey Jesus Christ. The unbelieving, he says in the same letter, chapter 4, do not obey the gospel of God. Faith Obedience are connected. Luke chapter 6, Jesus asks the question of, of, um, of, uh, of some religious Jews. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Faith 
and obedience die together. There, there must be a growth in holiness. That, that's how I know. That's how other people know, other believers know, the world knows that I am born again. I am walking as Jesus walked. Anything less is spiritual hypocrisy, incongruity. It reveals an underlying unbelief. Second page of your notes. The Holy Spirit's work of transformation leads me to obedience, greater holiness. Secondly, it leads me to great joy. Jesus' men were greatly saddened to hear that their Lord, their Master, would be betrayed, arrested, uh, executed within hours of Him speaking this. Verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. These saddened disciples are navel-gazing. They're looking at just themselves. They're looking at, at how pitiful, how poor, how, how unfair the world has treated them. And Jesus takes their eyes off of themselves and rightly, correctly places them on Him. If you really love me, agape loved me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father. Now it's the next phrase in verse 28 that has spilled a lot of ink. A lot of trees have, have died because of the end phrase in verse 28. Jesus says, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. What does that mean? In what sense is the Father greater than Jesus? Well, let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus is less than God. It does not mean that Jesus is a little God. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not God. It has nothing to do with ontology. A big philosophical word that has to do with being, essence, the stuff of something. When Jesus says, the Father is greater than me, he is saying nothing about who he is as a being. He is still fully God. Now, I just need to point you to two verses. 
One in Hebrews chapter 1, one in Hebrews chapter 2, and the matter is settled. Even though there are many, and Arians from the 4th century all the way up to the Jehovah Witnesses that are next door, Arians use this as their proof text to say, see, Jesus even himself acknowledges that he's not God, that the Father is greater than him. Not the case. We're not dealing with being, ontology, essence, stuff, this. You could quote me, that's now a verb. Hebrews, well, it wouldn't be a verb, it'd be something different, something that doesn't exist. Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 9. We do see him, speaking of Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned him, uh, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Look look, Look carefully at the verse. We see him, later identified in the, in the verses, Jesus. He was made for a little while lower than the angels. The Father, God the Father, in heaven, in his holy throne room, has always enjoyed undiminished glory. Jesus. For a little while, Scripture says, through suffering of death, his glory was veiled. He was shrouded in humanity. You remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John? And while there his He was transformed. It was as though he opened up his suit coat and those three were able to see the real Jesus in all of his resplendent glory. And they saw it. But for the the vast bulk of his time while he was on earth, his glory was veiled. They didn't see it. For a little while, he was made lower than the angels. A man. Later was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he is still God. Chapter 1, verse 3. He is the exact representation of the Father's nature. Verse 6, if we could go so far as uh, another verse here, he is worshipped. No one but God is worshipped. Jesus accepts that worship. Colossians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says in verse 9, In Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. 
And there is this little while, this little moment in time where his glory is veiled in his humanity. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Although he, speaking of Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. The Father was greater than the Son, not in his ontology, but in his mission. The Father sent the Son to intentionally be clothed, veiling his, 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 his deity in his humanity, that he might, through the suffering of death, give his life as a ransom to redeem fallen man. The Father was greater than the Son at this moment, at this time, because Jesus' glory was veiled. And he tells his men, who are struggling to understand all of this. You should have rejoiced that I go to the Father. Why? (laughs) Because now he is going to uh, resume his his role in the throne room. He will be seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will exude the glory that has always been him. The destination of the Son should inspire joy in the disciples. There's a second reason for them to experience joy, and that is because of the contention that will be for naught. Verse 29. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. Jesus tells his disciples so many things that are going to take place, not only to to comfort them and encourage them, they know by these kinds of declarations and prophecy statements, let's leave it there, they they know that, that Jesus is in charge. He's fully knowledgeable of what's going on. He is in control of all that's going on. There there are no surprise puzzle pieces placed on the table. He knows everything that's going to be played. Verse 30, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Of course, he's speaking of of uh, the evil one, the ruler of this world, that is an illegitimate rulership, by the way. John MacArthur calls it a divine, he is a divinely permitted usurper. That's Satan. He, he has no right, no, no place. It, it, is, it is Satan's intention that by killing Jesus, he will be the heir apparent. 
He will be the one who will ascend. He will be the one who will be the great, the glorious, the, the magnificent one. He doesn't realize that there is a cosmic table turning just about to take place where in the killing of Jesus, he will seal his own doom. He is contentious. And our, our struggle is, is, is not against flesh and blood. It is against uh, rulers and powers and principalities in the heavenly places. But Jesus' contention, they, they, it, it, Satan has nothing on Jesus. He has nothing on Jesus. He can't legally hold him. Jesus allows the evil one to have his way, but he has from eternity past planned that the evil one have his way temporarily in order that the Lord's plan of redemption might come to fruition. The contention is short-lived. And then the vindication, the... um, the, the, the third reason why the disciples um, must experience joy. Jesus is going to the Father. Satan, who, who is going to appear to have the victory, is, is going to get his, his derriere whooped. Jesus is alone, the victor. Verse 31. So that the world may know, I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The cross is not a sign of defeat. It's a sign of Jesus' obedience to the Father's plan. And in that obedience, redemption takes place. The Father is glorified. The Son is glorified. And we who believe are ushered into the Lord's eternal presence. Now, you may never have been in a physical prison like Bella Vista. But before Christ, your soul was in prison. You were enchained. You were a slave of Satan. You were a slave of yourself, of your sin, You were, or so you thought, the God, the one who established your destiny. It's all you, right? No, when we are confronted by the love of Christ at the Father's initiative, I respond by loving him, by believing in him, by obeying him. That's the sign of my transformation.
I had walked life's way with an easy tread. I had traveled where pleasures and comfort led. Until one day, in a quiet place, I met the Master face to face. With station and rank and wealth for my goal, much thought for my body, but none for my soul, I'd entered to win this life's mad race. Then I met the Master face to face. I built my towers and reared them high till they had pierced the blue of the sky. I'd sworn to rule with an iron mace. Then I met my master face to face. I met him and knew him and blushed to see that his eyes full of sorrow were fixed on me. I faltered and fell at his feet that day while my castles melted and vanished away. Melted and vanished, and in their place nothing else could I see but the Master's face. My thoughts are now for the souls of men. I had lost my life to find it again. Since that day in a quiet place, when I met the Master face to face. Father, words are fleeting and sometimes appear to be so so empty, cavalier, if you will, um, without depth. To realize that in my faith in the Lord Jesus, I am given the Holy Spirit. And He takes my wayward, meandering, self-centered, narcissistic life and transforms it. You, you honor your people with the privilege of being a part of speaking the gospel, of seeing sinners saved, converted, transformed. Father, how we thank you and praise you for your work. Be pleased, we pray as you look and you see our response to your eternal love. This we pray in the name of the victorious one. Amen.